0: Rice in Education, hosted by Suzanne Gallagher. We are committed to valuing students, empowering parents, and supporting communities to secure great educations for public school children in America. Pre welcomes all students, families, and community members who care about scholastic success for K-12 public school students. Visit our website ParentsRightsInEd.org and like us on Facebook. Join us by filling out the form on our website titled Join Us. You will find information regarding issues and information about local and state chapters. Hey everybody it's great to be back. Today is Tuesday the 6th of December Oh my gosh, Christmas is right around the corner. And I know that you, just like we, are focused on our families, right? Christmas is coming. Christmas, Hanukkah, this is the holiday season. It's about getting together with our friends and our families and uh, showing appreciation for them and forgetting for the most part about all of the contention out there in the political landscape. It's not everything. To most people. And I understand that. I sure as heck do. It's great to be back with you though. I've been out of the country for a little while, just getting rejuvenated. I'm still recovering from the election in the state of Oregon. Very unhappy about the outcome uh, that we could possibly have another eight years under the rule of people who do not support parental rights. And this is why I believe that state governments are so important and governors are so important, almost more than the president of the United States. We need strong leadership in our states. Got to change things from the bottom up. And that's the way our constitution was designed. It's the way our government was designed. And, um, you know, we have to be a part of that. So we cannot be discouraged I want to share a quote from the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. Quote, I get asked, who's the most dangerous person in the world? Is it Chairman Kim or is it or is it the Chinese president? The most dangerous person in the world is the American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten. It's not a close call. And that's according to Mike Pompeo. And of course, we, we agree he says that it would be the teachers' unions and the filth that they are teaching our kids and the fact that they don't know math, reading, or writing. K-12 education is the issue. It is the most important issue, and it must be addressed by candidates who are running for state, uh, state government roles as well as on the national level. Something else that came out that I wanted to share with you today, an important article uh, written by Larry Arn, that's spelled A-R-N-N. Larry is the president of Hillsdale College. Uh, They send out a publication called Imprimus, and this is the November 22 newsletter. The article is titled, Education as a Battleground. If you want to see the problem with American education... Look at a chart illustrating the comparative growth in the number of students, teachers, and district administrators in our public schools in the period between 2000 and 2019. So that's about a 20-year span, starting in the year 2000. The number of district administrators grew by 87.6% during these years far outstripping the growth in the number of students which was only 7.6% and teachers 8.7%. So think about it guys, 7.6% increase in students, teachers increased 8.7%, so so a greater increase in the number of teachers. But administrators an increase of 87.6%. That's the increase in illustrating the difference in these rates of growth. The chart also illustrates a fundamental change that has come over our nation as a whole during this period. A change in how we govern ourselves and how we live. To say a change is fundamental means that it concerns the foundation of things. If the foundation changes, then the things built on it are changed. Education is fundamental, and it has changed radically. This has changed everything else. He's punctuating what Pompeo said, isn't he? One way of describing the change in education today is that it provides a different answer than we have ever known to the question, who owns American children? Of course, no one actually owns the children. They are human beings, and insofar as they are owned, they own themselves. But by nature, they require a long time to grow up. Much longer than most creatures, and someone must act on their behalf until they mature. And who is to do that? Not many people raise this question explicitly, but implicitly it is everywhere. For example, it is contained in the question, Who gets to decide what children learn? It is contained more catastrophically in the question, Who decides? what we tell children about sex. Are these decisions the province of professional educators who claim to be experts? Or are they the province of parents who rely on common sense and love to guide them? In other words, is the title to govern children established by expertise or by nature as exhibited in parenthood? The first is available to professionally educated few. The second is available to any human being who will take the trouble. I love this guy. I like I like the way he analyzes and thinks and has unpacked this very important question. The natural answer to this question is contained in the way human beings come to be. Prior to recent scientific advances, every child has been the result of a natural process to which people have a natural attraction. Natural does not mean what every single person wants or does. It means the way things work unless we humans intervene. In its essence, nature means the process of begetting and growth by which a mature, living thing, comes to be. Not quite every human being is attracted to the natural processes of human reproduction, but nearly all are. And when the process works to produce a baby, it works that way, and no other way. This process of human reproduction and growth works for two reasons. The first is that human beings, when mature, are capable of so much more than other creatures. Almost from birth, we learn to talk, a rational function that indicates decisive differences from other creatures. Because of reason and speech, we are moral beings capable of distinguishing among kinds of things and therefore of knowing and doing right and wrong. Also because of them, we are social beings able to understand and explain things to one another that other creatures do not understand and cannot discuss. This draws us closer together than even herd or swarm animals. We are unique in processing these capacities, and it is in this specific respect that our nation's founders declared that all men are created equal. This equality has nothing to do with the color of anyone. Its source is the unique, immaterial, rational soul of a human being. One of my teachers used to respond to the claims of animal rights advocates that one must not be cruel to any creature, but that only those who can talk are entitled to vote. That's pretty good, isn't it? The second reason in nature that makes human reproduction unique is our especially long period of maturation. For months, human babies are simply helpless. Without constant attention, they will starve. For years afterwards, must develop the skills and knowledge that are uniquely available to the human being. Both the skills and the knowledge are natural, meaning all human beings can attain them. But both take time. Each child does the work of obtaining them, but each child needs help. Modern educators often mistake the work of helping them to learn for actually doing the learning for them. The second is impossible. They have to do it themselves. The skills of reading, writing, and arithmetic are direct exercises of the rational faculty. They are, in principle, the same thing as talking. And in principle, every child will learn, much of them unassisted. Just watch a child grow up to the age of two. He or she begins very early to respond to things with comprehension. Words soon follow. Children copy adults for the use of words, but they are doing all the work of learning. Little wonder that human beings take a long time to mature. They have so much to learn. Raising a child has always been difficult and expensive. With rare exceptions, it has always been true that the parents who conceive the child raise him best. And throughout American history, it has been thought that the family is the cradle of good citizenship and therefore of free and just politics. Public education is as old as our nation, but only lately has it adopted the purpose of supplanting the family and controlling parents. The political success of Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, Governor Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, and many other politicians in other states have largely been won on this battleground of education. One can look in history or literature to see the danger of where the idea of supplanting the family might lead. Study the education practices that existed in the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany and that exist today in communist China. Or, read the terrifying account of Orwell's 1984. They tell us that children, by distorting their natural desire to grow up and end their dependence, can be recruited to the purposes of despotic regimes, even to the extent of denouncing their parents to the state. We do not yet have this in America but we do have children being turned against their country by being indoctrinated to look on its past, of which all parents, of course, are in some way a part, as a shameful time of irredeemable injustice. We also increasingly have children being encouraged to speak of their sexual proclivities at an age when they can hardly think of them. Who owns the child, then? The choice is between the parents who have taken the trouble to have and raise the child and who, in almost all cases, will give their lives to support the child for as long as it takes and longer. Or the educational bureaucracy, which is more likely than a parent, to look upon the child as an asset in a social engineering project to rearrange government, and society. The revolutionary force behind this social engineering project is a set of ideas installed in just about every university today. Its smiting arm is the administrative state, an element of America's ruling class. The administrative state has something over 20 million employees, many of them at the federal level and most at the state level. Directly and indirectly, they make rules about half the economy, which means they affect all of it. Most of the bureaucrats who staff the administrative state have permanent jobs. The idea behind this was that if they do not fear dismissal and have excellent pay and benefits... That can't be reduced. Then they will be politically neutral. Today, of course, the public employee unions that represent this administrative state are the largest contributors in politics and give overwhelmingly to one side. They are the very definition of partisanship. The fiction is that these bureaucrats are highly trained, dispassionate, Nonpartisan and professional, and that therefore they can do a better job of almost anything than somebody outside the system can do. They proceed by rules that over time have become ever more hopelessly complex. Only they can read these rules, and for the most part, they read them as they please. Judges have up to now for the most part, given deference to the bureaucrats' reading of their own rules. It is a rare happy fact that this judicial practice is under challenge in the courts. If it should ever become settled doctrine that the bureaucracy is constrained by the strict letter of the laws made by elected legislators and enforced by elected executives, that will exercise some restraint upon the administrative state. Did you get that? He's saying that that they need to be challenged. We have to hold them accountable. That's our role, guys. That explains why, after decades of defending judicial supremacy, progressives are beginning to question the authority of the courts and speak openly about packing the Supreme Court. Public education is an important component of the prevailing administrative system. The roots of the system are in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Larry Arn, you're exactly right. And the tendrils reach into every town and hamlet that has a public school. These tendrils retain some measure of freedom, especially in red states where legislatures do not go along automatically. In some red states, the growth of administrators has been somewhat slower than average. But this growth has been rapid and large everywhere, even in the red states. In every state, the result has been to remove authority and money away from the schools where the students learn. In every state, the authority and money drained from the schools have flowed toward the bureaucracy. This is, this is huge. I know you all know this, but it's great to have it affirmed by someone like Larry Arne, who is a very astute man and the president of Hillsdale College. The political battle over this issue is fraught with dishonesty. Any criticism of public education is immediately styled as a criticism of Teachers. But as the numbers show, the public education system works to the detriment of teachers and for the benefit of bureaucrats. The teachers' unions themselves, some of the largest of the public employee unions, claim to be defending teachers and children. That cannot be more than half true, given that they are defending an administrative system. That has grown by leaps and bounds, while the number of teachers has grown very little. And I want to remind you of those percentages. Over 87% their the bureaucracy has grown. And teachers have grown only 8.7%, so one-tenth of the, of the amount. One-tenth of the amount. Worse even than this is the tendency the system sets in all of us. Bureaucracy is a set of processes, a series of prescribed steps, not unlike instructions for assembling a toy. First, this happens. Then that happens. And then the next thing. The processes proceed according to rules. It is a profession unto itself to gain competence in navigating these rules. And nobody is really competent. Today, we tend too much to think that this kind of process is the only thing that can give legitimacy to something. A history curriculum is adopted, not because it gives a true account of the unchangeable things that have already happened, but because it has survived a process. The process is dominated by stakeholders, mostly people who have a financial or political interest in what is taught. They are mostly not teachers or scholars, but advocates. And so we adopt our textbooks, our lesson plans, and our state-standardized tests with a view to the future political outcomes once the child grows up. I have said and written, and this is Larry Arnn speaking, I have said and written many times that the political contest between parents and people who make an independent living on the one hand, and the administrative state and all its mighty forces on the other hand, is the key political contest of our time. Today, that seems truer than ever. The lines are clearly formed. Amen, Larry Arn. He concludes... As long as our representative institutions work in response to the public will, there is thankfully no need for violence. As the Declaration of Independence says, prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. The Declaration guides us in our peaceful pursuits too. In naming the causes of the American Revolution, it gives a guide to maintaining free and responsible government. The long middle section of the Declaration accuses the king of interfering with representative government, violating the separation of powers, undermining the independence of the judiciary, and failing to suppress violence. And in another phrase it says of the king... He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. So it is today. And so it is our duty to defend our American way of life. This is Parents' Rights. Now. Please check your show notes for links pertinent to this podcast. Please consider making a monthly contribution to Parents' Rights in Education. We need your help. We have big plans in mind, and because of a very generous one-time contribution of $25,000, we are challenging our listeners and our readers, all of our supporters, to match that gives $12 a month, if there were only 500 of you, that would tally up to $6,000 a month, almost tripling the $25,000 check we just received in one year. Be part of that club. We call it the 12 by 12 club. A link to our website is in the show notes or go to parentsrightsined.org. See you soon.